Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special edition of our Coffee with Innovate Finance podcast series. I'm Janine Hurt, the Chief Exec of Innovate Finance, and I am so excited to have with me two real experts on fintech and financial innovation uh, and regulation as well. We've got Mark Chorizek from Partner Global Financial Institutions Advisory and Financial Regulatory Practice at Sherman and Sterling. And Nimai Digzit, FinTech Research Analyst, S&P Global Market Intelligence as well. Now, to set the stage, Sherman and Sterling have very recently launched a report entitled FinTech M&A Insights, Trends and Themes for 2021 and 2022. And this report was done in collaboration with S&P Global Market Intelligence and also Barclays Rise. So the report provides insight, perspectives, and really valuable advice regarding the key trends, market forces, and deal players that are shaping the consolidation of the U.S. fintech industry. So Nimai and Mark, thank you so much both for being with us today. Our pleasure. Thank you for having us. And I want to kick off and really just get right into the uh, the core of the conversation. Now, looking at the evolution of mergers in banking and specifically the movement of cooperation between banking and fintech, what can be said right now of the regulatory framework? And Mark, let's turn to you first. Sure. Um, well, happy to take that one. I think, um, you know, thinking about your question, Janine, I think there's a couple of important themes, um, one of which is, you know, there there isn't a single fintech regulator, of course, uh, today. There's certainly not uh, a regulator that um, encompasses certain topics like bank partnerships or data security and privacy or things like financial innovation. And there, there probably never will be one just because, uh, you know, the U.S. is not like other jurisdictions. We're not like the U.K. Uh, we have a lot of different regulators and those regulators have various uh uh, competing statutory mandates uh, between things like prudential regulation and things like consumer protection and things like investor protection. And so those um, those competing statutory mandates are something that makes our regulatory system uh, quite complex. And then, of course, we have this uh, what's known as a uh, dual banking system where we have uh, laws and um, uh, regulatory priorities as well as uh, different approaches uh, to innovation occurring at the federal and state level. So this this dual system of U.S. Uh, federal and state banking regulation and priorities is something that makes the U.S. unique. Uh, I'd say this, the second theme is um, just the fact that our, our you know the sheer regulatory the, the sheer complexity of our regulatory system is really um, our hallmark. So we have um, without rattling off all the agencies, you know, some of the big ones are, of course, are the Federal Reserve, which is the, you know, the central bank of the United States that, um, in addition to regulating uh, bank holding companies, they also regulate the, the U.S. activities of foreign banks that operate in the United States, as well as um, institutions that might be viewed as uh, systemically important, although there's no non-banks that are currently designated as such. And then, of course, you know, you have the FDIC, which is charged with um, ensuring deposits and thinking about the resolvability of institutions. That's a very distinct role. And then of course the OCC, which um, you know, looks at commercial banks uh, and the like. And then, you know, that's just the prudential banking regulators. Then you have, uh, like I said, on the consumer protection side, you have the CFPB, which is uh, charged with looking at and enforcing consumer financial protection laws and regulations. And then um, uh, of course the SEC, which is a, a very distinct mandate. And so I think, you know, recognizing that you have 
these distinct players. And then on, add on top of that, you have, you know, 50 state attorneys general all trying to be governor one day. And then you add on top of that, um, you know, the FTC, the DOJ uh, and, and um, state based consumer regulators, you know, there's just a lot of complexity. And so I think that, you know, there's, um, that's just a really important threshold issue to think about. And then I guess I would, the third point I would make is that, you know, there is a recognition by all these various bodies that, you know, FinTech is something real. There is, there is something happening. And, um, you know, whether you want to call it a digital transformation or, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the disruption of kind of the old guard of banking, you know, there's various storylines that, of course, that, you know, we are all familiar with in the media. But I, I think, you know, what is clear and, you know, there's a, um, there's a lot of colorful quotes just from one of the Federal Reserve governors that one of which I think we included her, her quote, Michelle Bowman, in her report. But, you know, she mentioned that there's these certain points in history uh, when an event can fundamentally change. Uh, how society and certain industries function, and I think there is this sense that um, there there is something afoot with fintech, uh, and there's uh, I, I'd say um, you know a, a real uh, sense that um, regulators have to think about um, how it's how 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 to regulate fintech, you know, given the the limited um, uh, statutory uh, you know powers that they have. And then finally, I would just note that, you know, the regulatory pendulum is shifting, right? Um, you know, the, the growth of fintech is happening amidst a, a changing re regulatory environment. And, you know, financial regulators um, under the Biden administration that, you know, of course, will continue to be pro-innovation, pro but they're going to be so in, in different ways. And there's uh, various areas that are a focus right now, such as consumer protection, equity and access issues, operational resiliency, and of course, antitrust issues that which we can talk about later, but you know, those themes are coming up uh, and being more at the front burner than maybe they were you know, in, in the last few years. So it's, it's very much an interesting time and, and a changing time on the regulatory front. Mark, that's really useful. And I wanna just stay on this thread for a minute before I bring Nimayan, because you talked a lot about sort of some of the changes, the evolution, the fact that we're almost in a turning point in many ways going forward and the focus now on, on FinTech. It's really interesting because obviously from the UK's perspective, we have we have a handful of regulators in terms of the FCA, the PRA, the CMA coming in at various points as well. And you've given such a good picture of what it's like in the US. And I know we work very closely with Sherman and Sterling to help uh, support UK startups that are looking to scale into the US because it is a key market. Now, from your perspective, you talked obviously about fintech innovation and being a renewed focus on this space. How do you think regulators are poised or what should regulators really do to best support the growth of this new innovation and the growth of fintechs as well? Yeah, um, that's a good question. And I think that you know, certainly uh, the, the, the good hardworking staff at these agencies are thinking a lot about how, what, what the right answer is. But I, I would say I would start with the premise and, and advise clients that you know, it's really critical to think about and, and to acknowledge that regulators' primary jobs are to fill their statutory duties. And like I said before, you know, for the CFPB, it's about consumer protection. And for the banking regulators, it's things like financial stability and safety and soundness. And so there isn't an explicit statutory mandate to be pro-innovation, really in some sense, whatever that means, right? Um, because it's a word that's used, I think, often without kind of any real definitional contours. And so, uh, you know, innovation, 
while not at the you know the core of their mission, is something that they're thinking about. Uh, um, especially, you know, whether it enables the financial st system to be stronger, whether it enables American financial institutions to be more competitive with their peers abroad, whether it enables, you know, financial institutions to be better at um, providing services to the uh, underbanked or un unbanked uh, uh, communities. And so I, I think in that sense, you know, finan financial innovation is an important theme, but the regulators are going to be looking at it um, through, 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 through their own kind of classic statutory lenses. But, you know, ultimately, and I think that, you know, this is solely my opinion, uh, not of Sherman, I think, um, I think fintech innovation will be best supported by regulations, um, being fairly and robustly applied and by making sure that bad actors in the industry are disincentivized from improper activity. I mean, even though we think of fintech as, um, as being un, unregulated or, un, or underregulated, the reality is that many fintech firms do engage in regulated activities. They, you know, that require licensing, such as um, money transmission or uh, consumer lending activities. And, and in cases where fintechs are operating without a license or improperly marketing themselves as, as being a bank, which is you know been the case in in, in, in some high-profile cases, or just failing to disclose you know critical information on fees to their uh, consumers, I think there should be strong enforcement uh, against those actions. And I think ultimately strong enforcement will help the industry grow. It'll help it mature. It'll help uh, it gain trust, not only by um, consumers, but by uh, financial regulators. And ultimately that will reward the companies with the strongest compliance cultures to grow and, and innovate uh, more smartly and, and more sustainably. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's an area that we talk a lot about in terms of finding that balance between consumer protection, but making sure that you're still enabling innovation to thrive and not stifling some of the new products that ultimately at the end of the day will benefit those consumers that utilize them. Um, so, um, I, Nimai, I want to bring you in here then, because Mark, you mentioned quite a bit about the consumer and the expectations there. Nimai, how do you think that really fintech has impacted consumers and users expectations and maybe particularly what you've seen over the past 18 months as well as in terms of covid how has that all brought it full circle and where are you seeing the uh, perspectives and the um, expectations of consumers now yeah it's, that's a good question it's a big question um, i think there are there are probably several places um several areas where fintech is going to influence or sort of alter consumer expectations, which then naturally will lead to transformations on the business side, right? Um, and not not all of these, let's say, shifts or evolutions in expectations are at the same kind of level of maturity, right? So, um, you know, M Mark was mentioning that, uh, you know, every once in a while, uh, the, the Fed governor, Michelle Bowman mentioned every once in a while in history, there are these periods where there are these sort of great sort of transformational shifts and, and oftentimes they're driven by some big new kind of technology or platform or something like that. So we could say that this current wave of fintech, you know, was was driven by the possibility that the internet created for like uh, very cheap and scalable distribution of, of financial products, right? And, um, you know, especially after what we saw in the last 18 months, that that is probably reaching, you know, and endemic levels of, of um, sort of maturity in terms of consumer expectations. Consumers expect that, you know, if I want a loan or if I want to uh, make some kind of payment, I can go to my mobile phone or to my 
to my computer and that's where I can initiate that process, right? I think that has probably really seeped into the into the consumer expectation at this point across age groups. I know we hear a lot about younger generations are uh, tend to be at the forefront of these things and, and, and that might be true, but I think at this point, we're also seeing it in, in older generations as well, uh, especially um, uh, in the aftermath of the pandemic. Many were forced to adopt um, you know, digital channels to obtain their banking services and things like that, where maybe traditionally they would have gone to a branch or something. Um, and I, I can get, get into that a little bit more in, in a second, but I think there are also, so, okay, the, the, the channel that you go to to acquire your, your uh, financial services being online or mobile, I, that's probably a big part of the shift in consumer expectations. But there are some other things that I think maybe are not as mature yet, but are on the horizon. For example, speed, um, whether you're a consumer or uh, you know, a small business or a merchant, the, the speed with which you can access services, the speed with which payments settle, um, speed with which loans get approved. I think we might, fintech companies are innovating in this direction continuously. We might see that enter more and more into the expectation of consumers, less patience, you know, maybe a little bit more impatience with how quickly they want services and, and uh, things like that to be delivered. Uh, another one is maybe more expectation that uh, for uh, or, or less acceptance of business models based on penalization, right? So uh, things like overdraft fees, late fees, these things are constantly being attacked by fintechs who are trying to stripping away at these business models. And we saw recently Ally Bank, which was which is a significantly large bank in the U.S. I think over fifty billion dollars in assets, got rid of their overdraft fees, right? So um, um, so uh, so that might be another sort of vector. Uh, of changing consumer expectations, and then one last one I would mention is customization. Um, uh, you know, uh, we're seeing more uh, mobile banking apps, for example. I think U.S. Bank has invested in this direction, other banks as well, of like delivering AI-enabled insights based on your specific spending patterns, your specific balance sheet, your specific financial situation, um, delivering you insights that are catered to you, or using alternative data to uh, analyze the credit. Of someone who maybe doesn't isn't doesn't fare well under the traditional sort of FICO-based credit modeling system. So personalized, customized um, insight and uh, services might also it's it, maybe it's not there yet in the in the average day-to-day consumer that they're expecting that from their financial services companies. But that's where fintech is pushing, and we might see that happen more in the future. Um, in terms of the in effect of the pandemic, I think people have spoken, you know pretty much this narrative of, which is a reality of very increased digital adoption. Um, you're seeing that across industries uh, and obviously FinTech has benefited from that greatly. Uh, so you see a big shift towards digital commerce. Obviously that has to be facilitated by digital payments. Um, so we're seeing a lot of these companies see huge, huge growth in mobile wallet adoption, et cetera. Um, one, uh, one interesting place is the banks. I think the banks, uh, even the sort of traditional incumbent banks have seen huge growth in their uh, usage of their digital channels. We, you know, we conducted a survey um, where we found, you know, what we're calling the rotation towards digital. So, we, you know, if you look at, the num- look at the number of people who said that they're visiting branches less frequently after the pandemic and how many of them are using their mobile apps more frequently, it's something like 60%. So you can say these people are shifting behavior out of branches into digital, replacing a lot of that branch behavior with digital. And if you look at what are people using branches for, a lot of it is like ATMs, cash withdrawal, cash deposit, check deposit, 
And now we're seeing, you know, based on that same survey data, something like a quarter of, of uh, consumers have discovered photo check deposit for the first time. A fifth of consumers have discovered that you can make a, a payment using your mobile app, things like Zelle in the US, for example. Um, which I think lends some credibility to this idea that some of the shift in behavior is likely to stay even after, let's say, the pandemic is behind us. We're on to, it's, it's out of the public awareness. People are going to become habituated to these new things. And that has all kinds of implications on where banks put their investments, how banks think about branch footprint versus digital investment, et cetera. So we're already seeing some of those shifts. Um, there's just some, some points to your, to your question. I think that's such a good point. And, and it's really interesting because we're seeing shifts in behavior as to your point, absolutely. And we're also starting to see sort of shifts in sentiment as well. Mm -hmm. And Nesta did a report last year, was looking at UK consumers, but they found that in the middle of lockdown, so in August of last year, at that point, 36% of their respondents said they felt more comfortable with banking and money management apps post lockdown. And 23% said they trusted those apps more than they did uh, before lockdown. And to your point, I mean, again, this is UK, but we saw adoption increase from 71% through to 76% over mm -hmm. the course of the pandemic. So there's really been this almost renewed focus on the role that FinTech can play. I, I want to deep dive into a piece that was mentioned by both of you around the inclusion play, but look at it slightly different from an SME perspective because COVID has really shown a light on the fact that SMEs are so much, uh, so so key as an engine of our economy going forward. So I'd be really interested to hear what you think in terms of what more can be done to support SMEs as that engine, and particularly with regards to the fintech space as well. Yeah. So um, first of all, I think last year was was a tough time for a lot of small uh, small businesses. Um, I you know. I, I think uh, the JP Morgan Institute did some really interesting research on this last year where they showed, um, you know, most small businesses have cash buffers, you know, cash on hand to sort of weather volatile situations of something like two to three weeks, right? And um, in the uncertainty of the pandemic, um, a lot of that cash had to be drawn down. A lot of businesses you sort of went out of business. And, and um, after the stimulus, you know, they did a follow on. Um, analysis and they found that you know companies are small businesses are, are are hoarding cash more than they were before. So the savings glut inside of small businesses is, is higher. Uh, and then you're also seeing consumers save a lot. So one of the big uh, one of the big um, sort of questions or problems that the banking industry is facing is they're seeing their deposits rise significantly. So consumers are saving a lot more than they used to, and loan growth is not increasing in the same amount. So. From a personal finance perspective, if you save more money, that's good for you. But from a macroeconomic perspective, then mm. somebody's making less revenue, right? And so a lot of that is hitting um, the small businesses. Um, so now, uh, what can? So how do you how do you reinvigorate the small business arena as an engine of growth? That's a big question, multifaceted. But we can think about like how can fintech maybe contribute to that? Uh, I I would say there's probably three levels that I think are interesting, right? Uh, two of those fall under maybe what you can call liquidity management, right? So simple things like settling payments faster. If I'm a merchant, you know, why should I still wait to, I still have to wait, you know, in many cases, two to five days for, you know, a payment to settle via the traditional sort of ACH system, et cetera. Um, just different kinds. Of, so there are some fintech companies that are innovating around that saying, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of credit your account sooner than what you would normally receive. Uh, via ACH settlement, and then we'll just take 
the money when it comes in via ACH, right? So it's kind of like a really short-term sort of lending product. Um, and different kinds of just cash management tools. I think a lot of small businesses have awakened to the reality that uh, they, you know, they need help with cash management. And I think fintechs can just play a lot of roles in that in that place. Then working capital management, right? So there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of uh, fintech companies that have built interesting businesses around receivables finance, automating that, making it more efficient. You look at companies like Bluevine, uh, Fundbox. You look at C2FO, which is big in sort of the uh, trade, uh, trade finance and, and enabling payments uh, in sort of supply chains and things like that. So helping people uh, again manage the liquidity, which is kind of the oxygen, day-to-day -day oxygen of a business, right? Um, uh, so there, there are some things there that I think fintechs can help with uh, and are already sort of innovating around. And then the third thing is sort of access to growth capital, right? Um, underwriting, underwriting a loan for a small business is hard because each business is kind of idiosyncratic. How do I really understand the risk here? How do I assess the value of the collateral, et cetera, right? And you know, this is one place where the US and the UK are a little bit different. In the US, we do have a pretty robust community banking system, which maybe can take care of that to some degree. I know the UK is a little bit more concentrated in terms of their banking. Um, you know, smaller banks may be more, more willing to lend to small businesses because it makes sense for them from a, from a uh, sort of an economic, in terms of sort of the economics of it. But even then, I think if you're even if you're a small bank, if you're looking at you know five hundred thousand dollar mortgage versus a five hundred thousand dollar small business loan, this just makes this is just easier to assess, right? And my job as a risk manager at a bank is to make sure I'm managing the risk on my balance sheet, right? So where can fintechs help? I think one thing we saw with PPP, we saw a lot of small SME focused um, lenders turn off their organic originations and shift very rapidly towards facilitating PPP. And we saw a lot of fintech companies do a lot of uh, PPP loans. And I think they proved that they can do efficient loan application processing and efficient distribution of funds. And they can make they can lower the cost on that, which, which creates some efficiencies in the process. And if these digital lenders can figure out how to underwrite small businesses, which is a much tougher thing, but if they can figure out how to make that process more efficient, the more efficient you make the process of making these loans, the cheaper they get, which means the more comfortable a lender will be to sort of provide access to these small businesses. And unless you're like a big high growth tech startup, venture capital isn't gonna give you funding. So if you're just a normal sort of local small business, where are you gonna get your access to growth capital to like you know, realize whatever strategy you have for your business? You're gonna to wanna to go to your local bank or your local lender. And, and so anything that can make that, make it cheaper and more efficient for banks and lenders to assess a small business, I think could be very helpful for reinvigorating that um, that space and giving them capital. And I think one company that's, I think, addressing all three of these tiers and is pretty well positioned to sort of pursue this, potentially pursue this kind of strategy is Square. You know, they, they recently opened up a bank of their own. They are one of the largest non-bank digital lenders to the SME space in the US already. So they have experience there. They've built products around, you know, speeding up the settlement of payments and, and delivering funds to merchants. And they're, they're a well-known brand in the payment processing space for merchants. So I, I think they're probably going to pursue something like this um, um, based on sort of the moves they made and they're, they're pretty well positioned. So it would be, it'll be interesting to see what they do. Yeah. But those, those are some thoughts in terms of how FinTech might be able to help. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree that with Namai that um, the PPP experience was, a, was a, I think, a, a overall a very positive development for the fintech community. There were really good stories and examples of um, uh, fintechs and also, you know, partner banks, uh, you know, such as Cross River and the like that have, 
that were just um, you know uh, very impressive in terms of volume of applications yeah. that, were per, that were processed, and that was a I think a positive spot for for fintech during a really tough time, right? During a, a time where there was a lot of confusion and and um, even some. Um, uh, I don't want to say apathy, but just some concerns about the program itself, right? And kind of it yeah. and um, and fintechs were able to, you know, uh, fill that void pretty quickly. And uh, that was a, a good example of the industry um, really, you know, uh, using their expertise in different ways, right? Um, yeah. And the broader benefit of of, of um, small business. Um, so yeah, I think that was a bright spot actually on the whole for the industry. And, and if you remember, they, they they really missed the first wave of approvals from the SBA. So they were, didn't even catch that first wave of SBA approvals. They they got in on this on the second round. And you know some of these companies, I think Square was one of them. They turned off their normal origination business pretty much down to zero and just wholesale shifted to this, which I think shows some level of flex. I mean that's fairly impressive. I'm sure there were a lot of late night yeah. uh, late night you know sessions there to to make that happen, but it shows some flexibility on their part. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess I would layer on a fourth to your to your uh, three layers is um, you know one of the interesting storylines of uh, where fintech is going is just how certain fintechs are focusing uh, their their business plans on on specific uh, um, communities, and um, you have examples of uh, you know relatively young fintechs. Um, you know, focusing on um, you know uh, minority-owned businesses or LGBT, LGBTQ uh, uh, small business owners or you know um, African American small business owners. So there's a lot of examples of some of these um, small small fintechs, um, for small for now. Um, you know, focusing on particular uh, communities, and and some of them have you know obviously have been um, have a, have had a greater share of um, underbanked populations. So so that's kind of a, a positive development. Not to say that that you know traditional banks haven't uh, sought to do the same, but I think you know that's one area where where um, fintechs have been um, able to move more quickly and kind of think outside the box, right? Um, uh, in ways that maybe you know banks just haven't um, in, in in recent years. So that's that's I think one one thing to keep an eye out um, in, you know in the next several years on whether you know those um, you, you know early stage fintechs you know grow in a, in a significant way and and whether they're you know ultimately successful in in providing you know more sources of credit to uh, certain LMI communities. I think this is such a great point, Mark, and it really builds on the the truth or the reality of the positive impact that fintech can have on society more broadly. So I want to pick up on this point and the final piece that you mentioned, change tax slightly. Uh, You talked about growth of fintechs and on that front, I would be really interested, obviously, you've just had this report around mergers and acquisitions. I would love to hear about your take on the competition and the antitrust rules that are affecting fintechs. So you'll have you'll be aware that in the UK, there recently was a decision by the C- CMA to halt the merger between Crowdcube and Cedars. Now, what do you think the direction of travel will be in this area? Yeah, I think it's anyone's guess. Um, other than that, it's definitely going to get tougher to do deals. Uh, at least there's going to be tougher, more searching questions on competition issues. And there's, you know, it's really complex. I mean, on the one hand, you have a lot of evidence of, um, of certain fintechs taking away or you know gaining significant market share, certainly in the last year, and that you know does uh, um, beg the question on whether they should be 
accounted for, whether non-bank lenders should be accounted for more robustly in the traditional bank merger review process, which largely weights, you know, commercial deposits at 100% and, you know, a, a lower weighting for, for credit unions and, and thrifts. And virtually, uh, well, I don't say virtually none, but very minimal um, uh, reviews of markets for how much non-bank lenders are, 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 are actually competing in those markets. So I, I think it's actually a healthy time for um, a modernization of antitrust law in, in, in the context of financial services. Um, but I think you know, where, where we are is that, you know, there's just, apart from you know, refreshing bank merger review guidelines, which are now, I think, you know, more than 20 years old, I, I think there's gonna be tougher questions in terms of you know, how, how do we you know, define a particular market? How do we um, uh, measure you know, competition within that market? And I think those are tough questions that are not necessarily answered by, for example, you know, the, uh, there's a, there was a prominent executive order that um, President Biden signed uh, earlier this month in July and um, and uh, you know that set forth a number of actions to be taken across several agencies. This goes back to my other point about regulatory complexity. I mean, it, it, the, the the agencies um, that are that are um, uh, targeted in the executive order, not just the banking agencies, right? You have DOJ that is expected to play you know play a very muscular role um, in antitrust issues in the next several years. And so, um, it, it, I think this interagency um, uh, interplay, if you will, is going to be uh, very uh, interesting to watch because there's various, uh, like I said before, you know, various statutory mandates. And there's also just historical um, differences in how they measure competition, right? So like the banking agencies traditionally have taken very mechanical approach by looking at uh, deposit market share and generally speaking, you know, predefined markets that are defined by the Fed. And, you know, the DOJ just traditionally has has not taken that mechanical approach you know there's been kind of a, a, a more robust tradition of looking at um, individual products and service offerings and so um, I think you know apart from stating the obvious that antitrust is certainly going to be something at the, at, at the top of mind in the next several years I think there's going to be a lot of interesting policy issues that, that the regulators are going to have to think through and then um, when we think about um, um, you know, fintech competition. We also have to think about, you know, data, right? And so, you know, who has access to data? Because that's largely, you know, for a lot of these fintech deals, it's it's often about, you know, acquiring consumer data, right? I mean, not acquiring it directly, but like, you know, acquiring the systems and the, the IP that enable um, that data to be um, collected and ultimately used for other purposes. And so um, as part of the executive order, there was a, 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 a call upon the CFPB to issue rules allowing for customers to move their financial transaction data between different banks and, and financial institutions. And so uh, it was essentially kind of a, a push to the CFPB to finalize um, a rulemaking that uh, it had already proposed under uh, Dodd-Frank. The relevant section is 1033. And that's that's an important provision um, and will certainly get a lot more attention. But I think when we think about antitrust laws, it's not just about enforcement, but it's also about um, um, uh, giving acquirers and, and targets enough information to understand kind of what the, what the issues will be in, um, in putting deals together. And, and I think this is one area where um, certainly there's going to be a change. There's going to be a modernization. I think it's certainly the time is ripe for rethinking of, of antitrust laws. And uh, I think, you know, from a, from a transactional perspective, our, you know, our view is that it's just something that 
parties are going to have to think about um, much more thoughtfully. And certainly some of these uh, antitrust guidelines are not going to be finalized in any, uh, you know, in, in the next few weeks or months or anything. It's going to take a lot of time. But in the meantime, you know, parties that are doing transactions have to think about how antitrust might impact the deal. Um, you know, you mentioned the 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 uh, the, uh, the, the deal, uh, the crowd crowd cube and um, Cedars deal. But you know, the the high profile deal um, he in the United States, of course, was the um, Visa Plaid um, a merger or the Visa's proposed acquisition of Plaid, and that that transaction ultimately was. Um, uh, terminated uh, or it never happened, I should say, um, mainly on antitrust grounds. And that was, you know, that was actually before the Biden administration. So even before this current regulatory change, there was already regulatory scrutiny and, and a sense that antitrust laws were were about to be, um, or antitrust approaches were about to be refreshed. And I think now that we are in a new, new administration and given the um, president's recent executive order, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a certainty that antitrust issues will will be more top of mind in transactions. Right. Really interesting point, Mark. Um, and it's a good point about Visa and Plaid as well. And both members of Innovate Finance, we followed that process really closely. But I think it's, a, it's such an interesting area to watch uh, in terms of what's coming up and what's changing. Now, on a, on a different topic, but also a very interesting area in terms of what's changing, what's coming out. And I would love to bring you in here to share your thoughts about what you feel about IPOs and SPACs in particular. Yeah, um, so we saw a lot of fintech companies go public, either via IPO or SPAC in the last year or so. Um, fintech companies have actually been utilizing SPAC vehicle, um, uh, I don't want to say fairly aggressively, but they're well represented among the users of, of SPACs to go public. Um, so I think how I think about this, I think there are a few things that going public means, I guess, for a fintech company. Uh, one is you get access to a new pool of capital, right? Public markets is a fresh new pool of capital. It's not the sort of normal VC private equity world that maybe a lot of these companies were getting their uh, funding from before. So new pool of capital means just more, more dry powder to uh, potentially access. You get a currency that you can use for acquisitions. So, you know, once a company goes public, um, you know, I, I think a lot of these companies are at, at pretty, you know, good levels of maturity in terms of where they are and sort of their life cycle and in terms of in terms of their roadmap. And we may see some of them become um, acquirers and potentially even use some of those, their new public stock for that. And I also think it justifies uh, some of the investments upstream. So I think one of the you know, it's an exit in, in a sense, right? Um, so, you know, one of the one of the big kind of themes or narratives or whatever you want to call it from the last 10 years has been, you know, a lot, and it's not just FinTech, a lot, the startup world in general, like these companies are waiting to go public much longer, right? I don't know if you remember, but that was a big theme that was under discussion. Um, private markets are supporting these companies for much longer, um, which in a sense is great uh, for, some, for, in some, for some reasons, but, it also has other implications. For example, if you're a fintech company that is getting, you know, fairly high sort of valuations uh, in private markets, you know, maybe you're you're valued at some some double-digit multiple of revenue. One exit that is sort of a that people think about when they get into these investments is like M&A from some strategic sort of M&A from some incumbent. But if I'm a bank whose stock is traded, you know, based on book value in public markets, I tend to be more of a conservative acquirer 
even if I'm interested in your technology, if you're trading at 30 times revenue or something, right? Um, maybe I'm not gonna do, I'm not gonna make that acquisition. So um, the fact that they're able to access public markets, that there's a demand from public investors for, uh, you know, for these companies, I think is, is uh, it justifies some of that upstream investment. And then SPACs are useful in particular because it increases your chance of getting a valuation based on your future possibilities as opposed to your current performance, which I think is important for a lot of fintech companies because many of them are as of yet unprofitable, right? So um, the SPAC is, is, is useful in that regard, which is why I think a lot of them have tapped into it. So true. Yeah. Good. Well, I'm, I'm mindful of time, uh, but I've got one final question that I want to pose to you and, and specifically Mark and bringing you in here on the regulatory framework. But we talk a lot about the evolution of the ecosystem and particularly around collaboration and partnerships between startup community and then the incumbent financial institution community. And when we released, uh, we served as a co-secretary for the Khalifa Review. And when we released that report earlier this year, there were quite a lot of recommendations in the UK about how we can drive appetite uh, for some of these partnerships, specifically looking at things like tax incentivization to really drive continuation and a continued appetite for collaboration. Mark, how can or how are the regulators really supporting this type of collaboration in the US? And what are your thoughts about what potentially more could be done in this space? Sure, um, well, it's, I'd say the US is taking a very different stance, I think, than other jurisdictions. You know, we don't have, we don't meaningfully have regulatory sandboxes or anything like that, um, you know, in the way that the UK and other jurisdictions have, but certainly bank partnerships, um, partnerships between banks and fintechs have been um, uh, of supervisory concern for, for years. I mean, I think there's a lot of sense, there's a, a sense maybe in press that it's a, it's a new issue for regulators, but it's not. Uh, it's just becoming a bigger issue and bank partnerships have been around for a while. It's just that they're, you know, the, as, as fintech is growing, they're just getting more scrutiny. Scrutiny, um, and so uh, what the banking agencies have attempted to do just recently, just in in, uh, in July, have they've, they've attempted to um, put in one spot some of their some of the themes that they've found important from a supervisory perspective, and it's not anything really earth shattering to be honest for most banks that are you know that have partnerships. Um, but it's it's just you know it's a another reminder just at the kind of the centrality of of how partnerships are you know the centrality that they're that they're taking on and from a supervisory perspective. So this this release um, it was just proposed in July, so it's still has to be finalized. But it would constitute supervisory guidance guidance of the Federal Reserve, the OCC, and the FDIC. And the attempt is to um, streamline and, and, and really synthesize uh, guidance that had been. In existence in different parts, and um, and so among the themes that are important is you know how should due diligence of bank partners or fintech partners uh, how, how should that be conducted? How, how are themes like um, you know regulatory compliance or licensing or operational resiliency or data usage, uh, data breach issues? How are those issues uh, uh, you know addressed? And then, of course, you know, there's a, the other major theme is um, contractual terms. You know, does the relevant program agreement or partnership agreement provide the bank with sufficient audit rights? The guidance is largely looking at it from the perspective of the bank, um, and so those themes are, um, you know, 
kind of front and center in the, in the agency's recent guidance. But I think, you know, it's, there's, apart from that, um, I think that regulators are taking, uh, you know, the classic look at bank partnerships through the lens of safety and soundness. You know, is the bank exposed um, uh, uh, disproportionately to certain risks, uh, you know, that are, that are created from the, from that relationship, particularly the fintech. And, and so if, what is the relevant you know, contractual agreement? How, how is it um, uh, mitigating those risks? And so that's that's largely what the regulators are doing in the space. And I think you know where when we when we think about bank partnerships, the reason why they're so important is because for for many small banks, that's really their route to fintech or to, to you know to interacting with fintech companies. Um, you know we have thousands of uh, of community banks in this country. We have a very unconcentrated banking system, and so these community banks are under enormous pressure to increase their fees. Now, I mentioned, um, you know, Ally. Of course, there's other banks that have gotten rid of, um, um, you know, so-called nuisance fees or you know these uh, these overdraft fees, and they're doing so because they need to compete, right? And um, I think that that puts even more pressure on these smaller banks that you know they don't have. Uh, large securities desks or, 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 you know, or other areas of revenue, they largely look to, um, you know, fee income, but also just um, traditional deposits to, to fund their loans. And so the, the opportunity to team up with a fintech um, is very attractive, not least of all is, you know, the, the kind of the energy and the talent that these fintechs bring that maybe some community bank in, you know, rural America just, just doesn't have just simply because it, you know the, the, uh, just its geographic location and just the, how hard it is to um, to to have talent um, at the at the high end you know tech engineering side of things and so uh, bank partnerships are a very attractive source and so as more and more small banks are you're looking at these partnerships there's a corresponding um, set of regulatory scrutiny that, that that's happening and, and so far at least the federal banking agencies are thinking about helping. Uh, this this situation by synthesizing existing guidance. Fabulous. That's a really, really comprehensive sort of overview and some key ideas in that, Mark, as well. Uh, Mark, Nimai, thank you both so much. Uh, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I think it's one of the longest uh, Coffee with Innovate Finance podcasts we have because I could literally be talking to you both for the, the rest of the day. Uh, so really appreciate your time. Thank you for spending with us. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Coffee with Innovate Finance. Uh, do look out for upcoming episodes. And in the meantime, please follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn or check out our website at innovatefinance.com for more on our events and programs. Until then, stay well and stay safe.